Every night's a school night. Finally back. Finally back doing a school night after quite a break. It's been about four months. I think over four months. Quite a break. But why talk about the break when we're back? And that song you just heard was by The Omen. You know, all that talk in a recent night school episode about the shape. That car weaving along the Canadian highway. When my friend and I were driving in the mountains and the car didn't have its lights on, even though it was dark. All that talk about the shape. You know, I feel like it's perfect to open this show with a a song by a band called The Omen. And what I really like about that song is the title. The title is Once Upon a Taste. Once Upon a Taste. Not a time, a taste. Just a very strange title. And that's what you get from Garage Rock. It's one of the cooler things about mid-60s, mid-to-late-60s garage rock, which is something I know very little about and that I actually like very little. (laughs) I like very little of it. I liked that song, obviously. I like The Omen. You know, I I just don't like garage rock, but I like The Omen. No, I, I do like The Omen there. It was a good song. No, there's good garage rock. It's just not my thing. I don't like rock. Despite liking all these offshoots, despite liking all of these things, and of course I like some, because if I were to say to someone, I don't like rock and roll, they're going to say, yeah, but you like this band, and it's like, of course there are exceptions. I'm just, I never fell in love with the sound of rock and roll itself. I like where people took rock and roll, whether they advanced it 
or broke it down into something more primitive. I like that, but for whatever reason, like rock and and garage rock is of course primitive rock and roll. But I'm just not. I just don't get into the melodies or the lack of melodies that much. But I've gone on that tangent before about my my highly nuanced opinion on garage rock. Oh, rock and roll. Well, me and the boys call it suck and roll. You listening to you're listening to suck and roll. Suck and roll. And supposedly rock and roll is a reference to se- Did you know rock and roll is a reference to sex? It's it's a reference to having sex. It's one of the stupidest things ever. The whole like rock and roll is a euphemism for sex. I was a little kid when I first heard that. Cuz they teach you young from the time you're a baby, practically, in this culture, they teach you, oh yeah, rock and roll, it was a way of saying sex. Because the music made people think of sex. That's just the dumbest idea ever. Dumbest idea ever. But anyway, Once Upon a Taste, that's not a dumb idea. Once Upon a Taste is a great title. Very weird. And that's what I was going to say before I started just hating on suck and roll. Suck and roll, you suck and roll. Uh, before I started hating on it, I was just going to say the cool thing about all of that mid to late 60s garage rock, even when I don't like the music, is they were going for something kind of esoteric and like fragmented. Like the ideas, like the names of the bands, the names of the songs are genuinely weird. And it often comes across like somebody deliberately trying to be weird more than actually being weird. Kind of like a teenager who's trying to act weird, but they suck at it. Back to suck and roll. Uh, It's kind of like that, but I do appreciate it. I have an appreciation for that. Just like I have an appreciation for the teenager who is trying to be weird, but failing at being weird in a quality way. Weird in a quality way. But anyway, we're going to carry on here. And, you know, I I got a new laptop a while back, hoping that it was going to fix some of the audio issues this show has been having for the last year or so. And it didn't solve them. There's still this like high-pitched whine behind most episodes I do. In fact, I feel like it happens more now than it did. It's what I call audiophile repellent. It's just like insect repellent, but it repels audiophiles. Because if they hear this like internal mixer feedback whine on a podcast, they might not want to listen to it. They, they might be upset because they're audiophiles. But that's okay. You know, even though... I have all this experience with audio. I can't seem to figure out this issue. At least I know that it's my mixer and not it's not actually the computer that's causing it. But why is my mixer doing it? I don't know. But there's a part of me that kind of likes it. There's a part of me that kind of likes that there's this just flaw running through it. No matter what I do lately, there's this audio flaw, audio flaw. And I like that it's audiophile repellent. I like that it keeps the audiophiles away. Because, I mean, why, do you, why would you even want an audiophile listening to your show? I mean, the things they do to children. The things that audiophiles do to children are so horrific. I mean, we don't even talk about those kinds of things on this show. As irreverent as this show is and can be, we don't even talk about the things that audiophiles do to children. And maybe it's time we address that. Audiophiles teach children from a very young age that things are supposed to sound a certain way. Things are supposed to sound clear. 
Everything is supposed to sound totally clear and loud. And if there's any kind of glitch, if there's any kind of feedback, it sucks. They're entirely focused on the superficial elements of what they're listening to. Because, I mean, you know, if you're my age, chances are you got a dub of some tape when you were a kid and you fell in love with the sound of that dubbed tape. And then when you actually bought the real record, you were disappointed because hearing it with greater clarity took away some of the atmosphere. And, of course, it goes the opposite way and it gets into a digital versus analog debate where, of course, like, you don't want to hear a recording, like if something has tons of digital artifacts that's not supposed to, it sucks. I mean, it's it's hard for me to get through that. Like if I hear digital clipping, it's hard for me to get past that on a musical recording. On a podcast, I couldn't care less. You know, like I couldn't care less if my voice right now has mixer feedback, digital clipping, you know, whatever it is. But something does get lost in music when there are digital artifacts, unless it's deliberate. And I, I, think, I don't think we're ready yet for, I mean, even though electronic music has made glitch music, oh, we're going to make music out of things that uh, they don't sound good, which people have been doing forever. I mean, bang, like think about like banging on something. You think about a drum kit. That's like taking sounds that you normally don't want to hear, like a snare drum. Like, if somebody just started hitting a snare drum outside your house, you'd be, what the fuck are they, excuse me, excuse me, what the, what the heck are they doing? Are they doing some kind of construction? What the heck are they doing? That's really loud. Sounds like a gunshot. But yet, in the context of music, it's desirable. So you can do that with digital glitches, just like you can do it with analog glitches. You know, you can make beautiful things. You can make enjoyable things out of problems, out of things that are technically, and I mean that word very literally here, technically that's a problem. On a technical level, some of these sounds are a problem, but anyway, point being, the things that audiophiles do to children are horrific, and if I can keep audiophiles from listening to this show just because my mixer has some feedback that I can't fix for whatever reason... That's good enough for me. Moving on. This next song is by a guy called Nolan Strong and the Diablos, which is one of those names that doesn't really sound right together. Like, I'm sure there's a bunch of Diablos. I'm sure there's a bunch of 1950s, 60s bands called the Diablos. I think that was even like a motorcycle gang. You know, it's one of those things. It sounds 1950s. Oh, we're the Diablos. Oh, don't go down to the arcade unless you want to mess with the Diablos. But Nolan Strong, he doesn't sound like a Diablo, and maybe he's not. Just because he's singing, just because he's the front man for the Diablos, doesn't mean he's actually a Diablo. This is Nolan Strong and the Diablos. And the song is If I, Oh I. And that's an amazing song title because it's just like... It's the simplest sounds the human voice can make. It's like the simplest words we have in the human language, in the English language. English language, human language, it's all the same language. But uh, if I, oh, I, 
it's the simplest language we have, but yet that title sounds so elegant, if I, O, I. So it shows you that even the simplest words, even just words that have a single letter or two letters, can sound amazingly profound, if I, O, I. You know, with every night to school night, having done this show as long as I have, I still make an effort to keep track of which songs I've played on previous school nights, and I have my own little system for that. I used to handwrite the playlists for this, believe it or not. I still have those somewhere. They're going to be worth something someday. My handwritten playlists, but it's been years since I've done handwritten playlists. Sorry to say, sorry to break hearts out there who can imagine me sitting there preparing my handwritten playlists, unreadable. You know, my my handwriting never grew beyond like a first graders. But anyway, you know, I do try to keep track of what I've played on here. 
it's just one of those little things for me. Like even though normal radio, even though traditional radio plays the same songs over and over again every day, even though that's kind of a function of radio, on this show it's very important for me to play new songs every episode. And when I do repeat a song, which I've done, sometimes I will play a song for a second time or a third time. I know in uh, Jimmy J's case, I played him three, I played the same song like three or four times in one episode, which is a little different. But, you know, even though I will occasionally play a song from a previous school night, I want to know that and say that. And it's my greatest fear, except for the shape. Aside from the shape, my other greatest fear is playing the same thing I played last episode. I always worry that I'm going to do a new episode. And because there's so much space between episodes these days, I'm always worried that it's going to be the exact same playlist and I just forgot to catalog it. But I usually know. Like, for example, when I was coming up with what I was going to play today, And sometimes I wing it. Sometimes I do completely wing it. Other times a little of both. Not that you care, but sometimes I do a little of both. Uh, But when I was coming up with the playlist for for today, I was like, I was listening to this one wonderful song, and I thought, I know I played this on one of the last episodes. I know that I played this. And it turns out I did. It's a good thing I decided not to play it today. But this next artist is interesting because I've played this artist before and I've played this song before, but I've never played this artist performing this song. And not only is he going to perform it, he actually wrote it. I've played the Roy Orbison version of this, Darkness. I might have played the Nikki and the Nobles version too, and if I haven't, I'll eventually play that. But I've played the Roy Orbison version of Darkness. It's not a very well-known Orbison song. It's actually quite rare for you to hear it. Like, you don't typically see it on best of Roy Orbison albums. And even Roy Orbison fans I've met have never heard him do it. And it's, to me, one of the best Orbison songs, Darkness. It just gives me chills. One of the only times in my life that I've done graffiti, and I've never used a spray paint can. I don't believe in graffiti. I don't even believe in graffiti. I didn't use a spray can. I just used a fat Sharpie. And I've always done it on bathroom walls, like public restroom walls. I've drawn things like I drew. I I did some creepy drawings once at this park bathroom. And I wrote some weird things. And then I went back and they had painted over it. And I felt bad because I was like, oh, the city had to spend money to cover up my graffiti. I didn't like that. But another time I, I wrote out some Roy Orbison lyrics it turns out they're not Roy Orbison lyrics, they're Gene Pitney lyrics, but I, at the time I didn't know that because I just knew the Orbison song, but the song Darkness, and it has the lyric, all of my memories are closing in as one. First I start to walk, then I start to run. I think I'm getting that right. I wrote that out on a wall of this restroom in a park, and I drew a big pair of sunglasses to represent Roy Orbison, the sunglass man. Oh, you're talking about sunglasses, man? We call him Roy Sunglasses. Good old Roy Sunglasses. Might as well call him that. But so this is some of the lyrics to this song are some of the only graffiti I've ever done. And I don't believe in spray paint graffiti. That's like hip hop culture, street culture, urban culture stuff. I don't have anything to do with that. 
I use a fat Sharpie on the rare occasions that I've done graffiti. But anyway, I found out later, like after loving that Roy Orbison song for many years, I finally did some research and discovered that Gene Pitney not only wrote it, and he's, of course, a prolific songwriter. Like you'll be going through lists of songs that you know, and you're like, oh, Gene Pitney. He's just one of those guys that was an incredible performer as well as an incredible songwriter for both himself and others. But Gene Pitney had an early band called Gene Pitney and the Embers. And he wrote Darkness for that band and performed it. So this is going to be Gene Pitney and the Embers who are going to chill you to the bone with darkness. If you 
Jimmy Irwin with, uh, I believe it was, I'm For You, based on what he was saying, or You're For Me, excuse me. He's, I think, I believe he did say, I'm For You, but he also said, You're For Me. They're for each other. So Jimmy Irwin, little Jimmy Irwin. As far as I know, he didn't go by little Jimmy, but he's little Jimmy to me. But yeah, more darkness talk, you know, going back to that Gene Pitney and the Embers version, the original version of darkness written by them, written by him, capital H, him, Gene Pitney. You know, that graffiti I did in the in the park bathroom that included those lyrics from that song, I did that years ago. I think I did that in late 2016 because I remember exactly what was going on in my life when I did it. And I did it in this weird little standalone bathroom that's at a a park on the water. You have to kind of go, you go down this old logging road that's been turned into a, a paved path, and then it opens up into this incredible, it's one of the tip, uh, it, it's like at the end of a peninsula, basically. And it's a place I've always gone, it's just this wonderful nature park. We call that a nature park. But I did that graffiti on the bathroom wall in that park, and I believe that's the bathroom that killed my mom. I understand how uh, <laughs> I understand how that sounds, but a week before my mom died, we had gone for a walk at that park, and she developed necrotizing fasciitis afterward. And necrotizing fasciitis is most commonly found in kind of like marshy, swampy places. It's usually found in water that's just been sitting. And so there was a little bit of a mystery when she died. Like, how did she get this? Like, when was my mom? I mean, she wasn't, she didn't go swimming. She didn't go to any place in the week before she died where she obviously would have contracted something like that. A a rare infection that's typically found in stagnant, dirty water. But she did use that restroom where I had done the graffiti. And my graffiti was still there. And I actually, I truly believe that that bathroom is where she got it because not to go into too much detail, but based on where she got the infection, like on her leg and everything, the only thing that makes sense when I trace the last week of her life is that she must have gotten the infection from that very bathroom. And you could say, oh, you placed a hex on it. You placed a hex on that bathroom and and your mom got sick and died because of it. I don't think that. I think that I somehow knew, I mean, 
I don't think this. I, I, I've known this all along, that there's something about that location that is special. As someone who doesn't do graffiti, I chose that particular bathroom to not just do graffiti, but to write out incredibly meaningful Roy Orbison lyrics. And I became a Roy Orbison fan originally because my mom liked him. Like, I didn't become a big fan as a kid, but my mom was always into Roy Orbison. And so I wrote out these profound Roy Orb, what I believe to be Roy Orbison lyrics. Uh, you know, they were written by Gene Pitney, performed by Orbison, and I drew his sunglasses. And so it's not that I hexed the place and my mom got sick there because of it. I believe it's because... I just knew that that was a special place. And even though it led to this crazy infection, I think that that is just a significant spot. And it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad place. It's simply an important place. And I think people have a hard time understanding that. I think when people associate something with something negative that happened in their life, and in my case, truly negative, like beyond the negative emotions, when you lose someone, when someone dies, it's negative by definition because something in your life was taken away. It was negated. It was removed. And so even though something was negated and that spot is associated with that, and I wrote lyrics from the song Darkness there, I don't think of it as negative as in bad. I think of it as simply significant. And that would be very out there for a lot of people. I mean, since my mom has passed, I don't want to go on too much about it. I, I, I do that enough on night school. But it's really interesting because when someone very, very close to you goes, you really get to understand how uncomfortable or comfortable or different people are when they come to death. And if I were to tell that story to the wrong person, even people close to me, even people who are otherwise the right person in my life, if I were to tell them that story, I would be telling it to the wrong person. It would make them very uncomfortable. But anyway, just it's interesting to me. It's simply interesting. And, uh, you know, I'm going to play another song here. I'm going to move along and play another song. And this is a song I have played on here, too. But what's interesting about this is this is a quote-unquote live version. And it's by a very obscure artist doing a very obscure song. It's Rob Dante, Talk is Cheap. And I played a version, I played the same version of this song previously, but it wasn't live. Yet it's the same recording. I know that it's the same recording. For whatever reason, a producer took this obscure artist and obscure song and they took the studio recording of the song and added crowd noise, audience noise, to the beginning and end to make it seem like it's live. It's truly confusing for me. It's truly confusing. It's, I don't know if this was done for some sort of promotional purpose, but, you know, Rob Dante was an artist. Like He did more than one song, and I'm going to play two of them right here. But for whatever reason, they took Talk is Cheap studio version and did a second version quote-unquote live with fake audience noise so i'm going to play that one the fake live version here but it, it's actually the same version i played previously just with a little crowd noise but it's it's got one of the best harmonies i've ever heard i still remember the moment when it kicked in 
when I was like, oh, this is a pleasant song. And then the harmony kicks in and it's just, it's, it glues the world together. When you hear the harmony kick in, it glues the world together, or rather it reminds you that the world, the universe is already glued together. It's not that this little old song with its fake audience noise on one version, it's not that this song itself is the glue. It reminds you that there is glue. It reminds you that there's glue. It reminds you that there's glue. Oh, this is one of those songs that reminds you that there's glue. It's one of them songs that reminds you that the the entire universe is glued together. But yeah, it's going to be Rob Dante, Talk is Cheap, quote-unquote live, followed by Rob Dante, Wonderful Day. And it is a wonderful day. Love is more than just Love doesn't last from You say you love me I say talk is cheap If you love me Hear what I say Love can be shown Wonderful day. Wonderful day. 
decided to look up I started second guessing myself whether that song was live or not because I'm pretty sure it's identical I'm pretty sure that version of talk is cheap is identical to the studio version but it uh, you know it, it it's definitely some sort of crowd noise piped in and I found a little description of it actually and it said this was the first song recorded by Michael Gordon when he was a senior at Fairfax High School it was recorded live at the Palladium, and then strings, background voices, and final mix was completed at Bob Ross Recording Studio. I didn't know that he did recordings too. I knew he was a I knew he was a heck of a painter, but I didn't know Bob Ross had a recording studio. But uh, yeah, it's interesting. I don't know. I, I'm pretty. Sh- I'm still pretty confident that uh, it's the same version that appears without audience noise. But it sounds like they recorded the lead vocal live uh, as a high school student and then took that and it was recorded. Uh, so they recorded the the lead vocal and then in the studio added in the accompaniment and background vocals, which is fascinating. That's a fascinating process, honestly, right there. I didn't even know that. That makes me more impressed. Whether or not it's the same version, a different version, whether they piped in crowd noise, I don't know. All I know is that sounds like a fascinating process to record the lead vocal live and then record everything else in studio. It came out great. That's how things should sound. That's how production should sound. And then Wonderful Day, the second one, no mysteries there. Same artist, but no mysteries, where you could clearly hear that that's a full-on studio recording from 1962. Wonderful day. A wonderful day in 1962. We're going to move on here to something a little more down-home. David Houston with the song Cowpoke, and this is one from my own collection. Country, but with some of that yodeling. It's got some of that Slim Whitman sort of appeal with the yodeling. Gets very high-pitched. You can practically hear the guy herding goats, herding cattle, 
singing, singing to himself to get through the workday. David Houston Cowpolk from 1968 I'm lonesome but happy Rich but I'm broke And the good Lord knows the reason I'm just a cowpoke From Cheyenne to Douglas All the ranges I know I trip with the wind No one cares where I go Well, I ain't got a dime In these old worn-out jeans So I'll quit eating steak Go back to beans I'll pick up a tin spot in Prescott, I know I'll ride in the Bronx in the big rodeo Haunting there, haunting. A good old haunting cowpoke. That's a good name too for a guy like that, David Houston. Anytime you have a name that references a city in Texas, whether it's a real name or not, well, it's kind of cheesy and expected. It also always fits, depending. I mean, anything fits if the performance is good enough, right? <laughs> That's what I realize more and more. I'm willing to accept anything if the performance is compelling enough. But that lyric, I drift with the wind, no one cares where I go. You know, with the wind, as always, the most occult element, by, by its very definition. It's hidden because you can't see it, but yet you can feel its presence. And we use it in that sense, too. We use it in the sense that it carries you different places. You think about a drifter, and that's a common idea that the drifter is kind of carried with the wind. The drifter goes with the wind. The wind is, for whatever reason, this solitary element. Even though it's not, even though like when the wind is present, it is everywhere. And it is touching and moving everything. It's also somehow lonesome. Like you think about a windswept hill. You think about if you've climbed up a mountain or anything and there's just wind up there with you. You think of desolation, isolation. And those aren't bad words to me. Desolation and isolation are not bad words. And the wind is good. <laughs> and that reminds me, too, because 
you know, in my rereading of the Bible, the first time I read it, I don't remember thinking a single thing about the book of Ecclesiastes, however you say it. I believe it's pronounced Ecclesiastes. But Ecclesiastes is where there's all the quotes about all is vanity. And I forgot that that's actually hammered home in almost every chapter of that book. I forgot that it mentions all is vanity in almost every single segment, in almost every single section of the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes? Do you say Ecclesiastes or Ecclesiastes? See, that's the thing when you're not raised religious. You don't know how to pronounce anything. And it's better that way because you just take it in as it is. But there's one particular quote that I shared last night, but I feel like it fits given all this wind talk. And it's, I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. Ecclesiastes 1.14. And that's another thing that I didn't remember from my first reading of the Bible, which is that it doesn't just repeat, repeatedly say all is vanity. It also repeatedly says and a striving after wind. I should really just read that entire book on here. I know I won't. I'll save you. I'll save you from that. But it's tempting because it just covers so much territory that I feel is of importance because it deals with the vanity of everything. It's not saying, when, you know, when the Bible says all is vanity, they mean all is vanity and a striving after wind. They mean you're just chasing wind. And it talks about no matter what you do, whether you're doing hard work or whether you're doing something trivial, all is vanity. Even somebody, a cowpoke, laboring in the fields, even being a cowpoke is vanity. Being a plumber is vanity. And so is being famous, so is being an actor. So the entire spectrum of what we can do as human beings is inherently vain. And there's nothing wrong with that. We're all chasing wind, and there is nothing wrong with that. And in fact, I would say there's something righteous. There's something righteous about the fact that all is vanity and a striving after wind, yet we find ways to do it meaningfully anyway including being a cowpoke, something I don't know. I don't know anything. I don't, I don't even know what a cowpoke does. Does he poke cows? What's a cowpoke? A guy who pokes cows? Huh? I don't even know what a cowpoke is. But we're going to continue on here with Mike Regal. Talk about not being humble. Mike Regal. It's like the pro wrestler William Stephen Regal. But this is Mike Regal and the Quotations, which is a great name for a backing band in this era. The Quotations. I like it because the backing group, the the backing vocals, usually they're just reiterating what the lead vocalist says anyway. So the idea of calling the backing group the Quotations, it's actually describing what they're doing. They're quoting the lead vocalist. They're quoting Mike Regal. Who are those guys on the background of the stage who just are quoting the main guy? They're quoting him. That's what they're doing. That's what a that's what a chorus is. They're quoting the lead vocalist. But the song, I love this song title. I'm a big fan of long song titles. I'm a big fan of long titles, period. As an artist, as an artist myself, 
I always gravitate toward long titles when I'm titling my own things. It's just how my brain works. It's long form. I don't know why. Long-winded. There's that wind coming back again. Long-winded. I'm proud to be long-winded. And the wind plays a role in that too. But Mike Regal in the quotations, the song is, Is it true what they say about Barbara? You can imagine what the song's about just from that title alone. Is it true what they say about Barbara? I'll, you know, before I'll just let you hear the lyrics. This song is just filled with good lyrics, filled with little gems. This song should make you laugh. Is it true what they say about Barbara? Mike Regal and the quotations. I've come to you, Billy, because you're my closest friend, and I know that you won't lie. Is it true? Silence speaks for itself. Is it true what they say about Barbara? If it is, if it is then I just want to die. Yeah, brutal but funny, which is how we prefer songs from that era. At every night's a school night, we prefer our teener pop, our doo-wop songs to be funny but brutal. We want them to hit us close to the heart, but also give us a laugh, which that one did. Is it true what they say about Barbara? My opinion is yes. My opinion is that yes, it's true what they're saying about Barbara. And what I like about that song is for such a simple little catchy teeny poppy song, a poppy teeny, not to be confused with an apple teeny. What I like about it is there's a lot going on there to think about. And I mean, first there's that lyric where it's like, is it true what they say about Barbara? If it is, then I just want to die. 
He doesn't say wanna. He says want to. Then I just want to die. <laughs> and, and then the one where he says like, and now I turn to you, Bill, because you're my best friend. So he's trying to, you know, he, he figures his best friend will tell him how it is. If she's double teaming, uh, not double teaming, if she's double timing me, if she's two timing me, you, Bill, will tell me. But then you, you learn a little bit. There's a twist at the end where he says, well, Billy, you haven't answered, but I guess your silence speaks for itself. And it never actually says it, but the implication is that his girlfriend is seeing his best friend, too. Whew. Again, funny but brutal and true. So many people have gone through that, I can't even imagine it. Can't even trust your best friend. Can't trust your girl, can't trust your best friend. Good thing you can trust the wind. It's funny how much, I, I know that in the last like five, every night's of school nights, I've talked about the wind too. And I talk about the wind on night school. It's just, this is just a wind show. It's just a wind show. Oh, are you talking about the wind show? A guy who really likes wind? But yeah, we're going to move on to Hayden Thompson here. We're going to do a block, first full-on block, because in every night's a school night, uh, you know, just in our own little lexicon here, when I say block, I mean more than two, so at least three. At least It takes at least three songs to make an official block, and this is going to be an official Hayden Thompson block. And the first track is going to be 1688. So 16.88, 16.88. Hard to know what he's talking about until you hear the song. And that's going to be followed up with Here We Go Again, and then closing out the Hayden Thompson block will be Queen B. Chicago Yes, it leaves at 11 1688 Would buy me a ticket I ain't got a dime No, I ain't got a dime I left home just a young man Seeking my fortune and fame Things have gone bad Not a break have I had Oh, what a crying shame I found me a job washing dishes. Sixteen eighty-eight is my goal. When I get my pay, I'll be on my way. But for now, it's pan pots and bowls for boys. Now it's 
and pots and bowls. Now the wind blows cold in Chicago. Soon the snow will be flying, you see. I hope that I can be back home in Tennessee. will be glad to see me I can see the tear in mom's eye I can hear dad say son welcome home you've been gone too long my boy you've been Come back is what I'll do Buzz around your throne 
in our honeycomb for two. Queen Bee, come on home. Queen Bee will pop to dawn to see that our honeycomb is just a house of wax to me. Queen Bee, come on home. Send my queen bee home Mighty wind and a little breeze Send my queen bee home If you come back, here's what I'll do Build for you a throne Save my honey just for you Queen bee, come on home Queen bee will not too dark to see That our honey comes Just a house of wax to me Queen bee, come on home Buzz around your throne. Never heard that one before. Hey, baby, I'd like to just buzz around your throne like a bee. Hey, baby, I'd love to just buzz around your throne sometime. It's like a almost fetishistic. I like. I have this thing that I like to do, and uh, involves you sitting in a chair, pretending you're the queen bee, sitting in the throne while I buzz around your throne. That's an insect voice. That voice I'm doing right now is what I call my insect voice. Some people have inside voices. I have insect voices. They come out when I hear songs about queen bees and guys buzzing around the throne. But we're going to move on here and we're going to play a song by a guy named Jerry Fuller. And it's Guilty of Loving You. And as you might expect from songs with titles of that nature, he's a, he uses the courtroom as a metaphor. And the courtroom is the, the greatest metaphor ever. I love courtroom metaphors. Nothing like a good courtroom metaphor. At least on every night to school night, that's the kind of metaphor we like. Courtrooms. Not jail cells, not prison courtrooms purgatory because that's what court is that's what a courtroom is it's purgatory you're in this in-between place waiting advocating for yourself someone's advocating against you and you don't know where you're gonna go you're in purgatory baby you're in purgatory you don't know if you're going to heaven or hell heaven being freedom hell being prison so we like a good courtroom metaphor here and Jerry Fuller has a great one. And what better courtroom metaphor is there than one that pertains to love? Order in the court, my heart is on trial. I solemnly swear it's true. If this is a crime, my darling, then I'm so guilty of loving you when we kiss goodnight i hold you so tight this is your biggest clue 
I could plead insane, but what would I gain? I'm guilty of loving you. Anyone in town is your witness. I've told everyone I know. Give me 99 years of your loving, cause I'm guilty of wanting you so. So put me anywhere. But please no solitaire In a prison that's made for two You don't have to guess I really must confess I'm guilty of loving you Anyone in town is your witness I've told everyone I know Human beings impress me. They really do. Despite my natural tendency to be a curmudgeon, Despite my natural tendency to, you know, just be a little bit averse, you know, toward humanity. they Humans just impress me endlessly, you know, and that's a great example. So many good lyrics in there. I mean, I could plead insane, but what would I gain? I've thought about that myself. You know, I've thought about, you know, I've seriously sat down and considered this almost like a business decision where I've thought, should I just go insane? Should I officially just make myself insane? Will that help me accomplish what I want to accomplish? And no, it won't. No, it won't. But I have really tested my sanity over and over again. I would say going back to the time I was a teenager, I think that I've been trying to push my sanity as far as it will go. Pushing my sanity as far to the edge as it will possibly go and figuring if it tips over into the abyss... It tips over into the abyss, and then I'm insane. But so far, it hasn't happened, and I feel like I've gotten pretty good, not overconfident, but pretty good at knowing that boundary. And all that's ended up happening is I've expanded the definition of sanity for myself. I haven't gone insane. I've simply expanded my own sanity into something larger and more expansive than it otherwise would be. And I, when you do that, you run the risk of losing your mind. You run the risk of sounding like you've lost your mind just explaining this process. But I think that is part of the, the magical process, the spiritual process. I think it's just the process of being alive. It doesn't matter what placeholder word you want to give it. I think a large part of life is pushing your own sanity, doing all kinds of things to it, unspeakable things, not the kind of things audiophiles do to children but doing all kinds of things up to that point. Everything except that. Because, I mean, you think about audiophiles, and audiophiles are insane. Audiophiles think something can only be enjoyable if it is heard in perfect clarity. 
using a very specific playback device or piece of equipment. That sounds pretty insane to me. But everybody knows audiophiles are insane, so I'm just, I'm preaching to the choir. I'm preaching to the choir about audiophiles. But guilty of loving you, you know, I I said it was going to be a courtroom metaphor, and it was a darn good one. I could plead insane, but what would I gain? I like the lyric too. Anyone in town is your witness. (laughs) Anyone in town is your witness. But then that real, oh man, that real kicker near the end, put me anywhere but please no solitaire in a prison made for two. A human being wrote that. And then another human being, I don't know if this guy wrote it or not. I didn't do my research, but I don't know if Jerry Fuller is performing a song he wrote or if somebody provided it to him. Doesn't really make a difference because a lyric like that, put me anywhere, but please no solitaire in a prison made for two. Just the fact that a human being could write that down and another human being could perform that and have it impact you the way it does is just incredible to me. I'm going with not guilty. While he's clearly guilty of loving whoever this mystery girl is, and I like how many mystery girls these songs involve. There are so many songs that don't name the girl. There are plenty that do, but there are so many songs that don't name the girl, so you have no idea who they are talking about. I know that he's guilty of loving her, but in the grand court, in the court that's larger than that trial, he's not guilty because of what he's capable of doing with his voice and his words. And I am the judge. But I like how it was symphonic, too. You know, I'm hesitant to get into the symphonic aspects, the orchestral aspects of that music. Obviously, the more popular songs from that era have a lot of the sweetener, the orchestral backing. I feel like it worked really well in that song. I feel like it added to the song because the content itself is gritty, using this courtroom prison metaphor. But then it has this orchestral backing and I feel like orchestras should be in courtrooms how come they don't have orchestras in courtrooms imagine that imagine and it would make sense too because like if you go see an orchestra perform which I've never done I've probably seen an orchestra perform I've, I've seen an orchestra I've seen an orchestra okay but you know when you go see an orchestra you already feel like you're in a courtroom so you might as well combine them You might as well have orchestras in courtrooms and imagine what that would do to a court case. Imagine like when they're they're reading the verdict, if there was like very subtle, you know, some sort of like cello and then it and then when they give the verdict, it bursts into the full symphony. Just imagine what that would be like a symphonic courtroom. That seems like something they would still do in England or something in the same way that English judges and lawyers wear those wigs you'd think that they would have orchestras in the courtroom there just an idea for the future there's nothing stopping us from doing that that would be revolutionary if we did that like if they made an announcement if Obama bin biden first political reference of the episode by the way but at the end uh but if Obama bin biden came out and he was like we're we're gonna we're going to have symphonies in the courtrooms. I mean, people would laugh. They'd be like, oh, he's lost his mind. He's got dementia. But it would be really cool. I'd be partying in the street. I'd be like, that's one of the best developments in judicial culture in my lifetime. 
to have orchestras in the courtrooms. Maybe I'm going to go hold a sign out on the street. I'm going to go picket the local courthouse with a sign that says, Orchestras in Courtrooms. Jerry Fuller gave me the idea, wherever he is, whoever he is, wherever he is. But yeah, we're going to close this one out. We're, you know, 71 minutes in, which is a good length of time for every night's a school night. And no samples this episode. You know, I'm sure I've gone into it before. But, you know, samples were originally going to be just like a, a very rare thing on this show. I was like, I remember talking about an episode a couple years ago and I was like, and the next one's going to have samples, you know, like it was some sort of selling point, like the sort of person who actually listens to this show is like, yeah, you know, every night to school night's pretty cool, but what it's missing are samples. But like I talked about on night school, everything can become an institution in the same way, like a stack of papers on the floor of your office becomes an institution and you just keep throwing papers onto that stack and you realize at some point oh yeah, I can actually do something with those papers. But in my mind, they've been sitting there for so long that they've basically become this institution in my household. And everything in your life is that way. And that's true for every night to school night too, where I started using samples. And because I started doing it and I liked the result, I got into this mindset of every episode, every episode's got to have samples. Because I used samples once, every episode's got to have samples. And I do plan on using samples again. But I just don't want that to be a requirement. Because honestly, I think one of the reasons I've been doing so few of these is because I, I created this like sample, this, this expectation that I need to collect samples in order to do this. And that just adds one more layer of stuff to do. It just adds one more box to the checklist and it makes it less and less likely that I'm just going to rip these out. Because the reality of just me playing songs is easy, but it becomes this formidable task when I start adding more and more components. So there will be more samples, but I just don't want that to be a requirement. You know, I don't want it to be something I have to have. I don't want it to be an institution. As cool as it can be, I don't want to feel the need to do that. So sample free. Every night's a school night. Now sample free. But we're going to close this out, and this is a guy who, I believe I've played him on here once before. His name is Richie Cordell, and that's Richie with a T in it, which is always interesting to me. When people named Richie spell it with a T, R-I-T-C-H-I-E, because the name Richard certainly has no T. I've never met a Richard with a T in it, R-I-T-C-H-A-R-D, Richard. Hey, Richard. Hey, Richard. Richard. Never met a Richard like that. But yet there's tons of Richies who use a T. Like, were they worried that somebody wasn't going to know how to pronounce it? Oh, if we spell it with just a C-H-I-E, I mean, there's no other way to pronounce it. Everybody knows what the name Richie's all about. Why add a T? So I can talk about it on my show. That's why. All these men over decades who have put T's in the middle of their name Richie, R-I-T-C-H-I-E, they all did it so that I could talk about it someday. But Richie Cordell, and this song is from 1965, and it's called Raindrops. And it's the perfect way to close this out. Close this episode out with a little, a little raindrop, some little raindrops. All this talk about wind, and in the end, we're just going to 
play you some raindrops. It's the sound of rain. Turns out this is like a new age atmospheric recording of raindrops. No, it's Richie Cordell singing a beautiful song called Raindrops. And uh, it's going to close us out here. And uh, as always, I appreciate anybody who listens. It's nice to be doing an every night's a school night. It's nice to be doing the show that the show is named after. Because it gets kind of weird and long when it's like, oh, I, I do a podcast and it's called Every Night's a School Night slash Night School. And the website URL is School Night Podcast. Like sometimes when I try to write down School Night Podcast, I write Night School Podcast, which is probably more accurate considering I've done exponentially more night schools at this point given that I almost exclusively do night schools at this point. But yet, that's not the case. This show still centers around every night's a school night. Every night's a school night is still the nucleus. It's still the heart. Dare I say it's the brain. And it's a different person who hosts it. I know our voices sound very similar. I know that we have very similar ways of talking, but that's why I hired that guy. I hired this other guy to do night school, Because he sounds so much like me. Richie Cordell, Raindrops.
God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free So take my hand And walk this land with me And walk this lovely with me Though I am just a man When you are by my side With the help of God I know I can be strong I know I can be strong. 